Thanks for joining us. The following is a presentation of Ignite Global Ministries and features the teaching of Pastor Ben Dixon. Pastor Ben has a vision of strengthening the church to impact the world. He serves as lead pastor at Northwest Foursquare Church in Federal Way, Washington. A little bit about me as yes, I am lead pastor at Sunrise Christian Center, and I've I've been in that place for about two years, and I grew up in a great home. My dad was the pastor and founder of our church. Actually, he planted our church when I was six years old, but I did not grow up wanting to be a pastor. I thought I could make more money doing something else. That was my little brain growing up, and my parents uh, painted a good picture of the ministry. They're, they're like very genuine, amazing people. My dad was radically saved from a life of drugs and alcohol addiction when he read David Wilkerson's book, The Cross and the Switchblade, and then he started leading people to Jesus and seeing people delivered of demonic oppression and healed, and he just, he led so many people to Christ. His church said, we're going to hire you to be an evangelism pastor, and he's like, what's that? And uh, he thought every Christian just told everybody about Jesus everywhere they went. And, uh, and so he ended up becoming a church planner, and uh, he's, an amazing, he's an amazing dad. And uh, he and my mom, you know, led me in the ways of the Lord. But I got stuck in a pornography addiction through my youth years and lived a double life. And Jesus radically set me free when I was 20 years old, right before my 21st birthday. I'm 40 now, as of uh, 2020. And uh, I had a life-altering experience with Jesus, and then it was very apparent very shortly after there through some unusual set of prophetic circumstances that God had called me to preach the gospel and go into vocational ministry, and so I started Bible college, and one thing led to another for me to become a lead pastor, and something's happened over uh, the course of 2020 that I want to talk to you about today, and it relates to the series that you've been in, and it's that I happen to fall in love with the church, and I actually had a revelation of the majesty, the importance, the power, uh, the ideal of what the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to to be. And so I know it can sound self-serving as a pastor to say, uh, it's really important that we all love the church more, <laughs> uh, right? But r- really, it's a revelation of this, my study in the book of Acts and the scriptures and, and Paul's letters that has just caused me to see the importance of the church that I believe w- could, could set people free today, set people on fire for how they could participate in the eternal purposes of God in their generation through the life and ministry of the church of Jesus Christ. And so today my message is titled The Church, Household Pillar and Mystery. Household Pillar and Mystery. And those are kind of three uh, words or concepts that maybe they don't really seem that relatable to one another, but Paul puts all of these things together in 1 Timothy chapter 3, which is what we're going to read from in just a minute. So my task today is try to sell you on something that maybe you think you already know about or you're already convinced of, and maybe you don't think you need to be more passionate or more involved. Uh, And so it's tricky. And then in the culture we live in, the church has kind of not got a great reputation in in the culture wars right now, in the middle of society. Churches are challenging governing authorities. I think, sadly, churches are reflecting back to the world, the image that the world already has of division, of fights over politics, cultural issues, um, how we handle COVID-19 issues. Uh, And so the church is not necessarily in this place of favor in the eyes of of society or in our nation. And then I would also say there's a great movement 
uh, happening, especially amongst younger evangelicals and Christians, called deconstruction. And people are writing books and, uh, you know, um, posting things on their social media like, I'm in deconstruction. And I was always like, well, I thought we were supposed to be like justification, sanctification, transformation. Come on, somebody. Um, but deconstruction, I don't remember that one in the Bible, right? And what they're talking about is deconstructing their faith and they're like unraveling. And unfortunately, uh, I think some people go through periods of what some uh, mystics called like the dark night of the soul where they went through periods of doubt or grief or sorrow and like, is God really real? Is he there for me in my pain, right? And God is with us in our, our doubts and in our seasons of grief. And sometimes there can be health to kind of unpacking those things and emotions and God is bigger than those things. But unfortunately, the current movement of deconstruction seems to lead most people away from church and away from actually even faith in the one true God of the Bible. And so a lot of people have wrapped their deconstruction stories uh, into the experiences they've had with church hurt and or spiritual abuse even. And I would not want to make light of any of those things because spiritual abuse is, you know, completely inappropriate and it's evil, it's demonic. Right and, uh, and, and church hurt is something that, unfortunately, we do experience. But even in light of all of the bumps and bruises and failures of the churches and spiritual leaders such as myself, who hopefully I'm faithful and I, I do believe I meet biblical qualifications totally by the grace of God, uh, but I'm not a perfect leader, right? But even in, in light of all of our, our, our mistakes and our problems and our challenges in the church, I still love the church of Jesus because I'm convinced that I've seen something in Scripture that makes not only Jesus worth giving your life to, but the church giving your life to. And so the, the subtitle for my message would be Why You Should Love the Church and Give Your Life for It. And selling you on something that maybe you, you think you already know about church and all of that is tricky, right? And I don't want to be totally like the infomercial salesman. And I remember Jerry Seinfeld uh, in one of his comedy sketches talking about how the most pathetic words he ever uttered in his whole life were, yes, I would like to order the Ginsu knife. And he's like, you're so vulnerable at midnight where you're watching these infomercials and you're like, wow, look it, that's a knife that can cut through a shoe. And then he's like, you, you get it? And he's like, why did I need a knife that can cut through a shoe? Like, when would I ever use it to do that, right? And so I want to sell you on something, hopefully not in a slimy salesman way, but I want to show you something that I believe would give you the why. Why should should you love the church? Why should you give yourself to discipleship? Why should you serve? Why should you be a part of this great mission that Christ has given us? So we're going to look at Paul's words to his protege, uh, young Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16 in the NIV. It reads like this, although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how you ought to con or people will know how to, they are ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Amen? Father God, I pray that 
these few minutes that we have to get into the word of God, that you would do something by your spirit to ignite a fire in us for the purpose of the church and what you've called us to be a part of. Not only that you've called us to be followers of Christ as individuals, but you've called us to be a part of the visible community of God in the earth, the church of Jesus Christ, the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us uh, understanding and you would cause us to see what you've laid forth in this biblical revelation that Paul wrote to Timothy and what it means means for us today, that we would be able to take it and apply it to our lives, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but we'd be doers of it. And in this, you would be glorified. In your great name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, so the church, we see these three images that Paul uh, paints for us of the church in this passage. And these aren't the total uh, pictures that we're, we see in the New Testament. We see that the churches are referred to as the body of Christ, as the bride of Christ, uh, as the, the building of God, the family of God. Sometimes we're referred to like that we're good soldiers. So there's almost like a military sense that the church has written um, to sometimes. But here we see that the church, the first image that Paul talks about the church here is that the church is the household of the living God, the household of the living God. We are a church of the living God. Come on, right? That, he's alive. Our God is alive. He's actively moving and participating in history with us, and he is working through his household, the church. So the church is to be a household of households or a family of families. If the church is a household, then a church can never rise above the strength of its families. A, a church can, the, the, the household of households can never rise above the health and maturity of its households or families. So the quality of the marriages, the quality of the parenting, the quality of the families and houses in this church will determine the quality and the destiny and the impact that this church can have on the city and can accomplish for the purposes of the kingdom of God. We're a family of families, a household of households. And what this, what this tells us is that God is alive. He's actively participating uh, with the church, with his household, and then the family is a pattern for us. So when we talk about the church today, the ecclesia is, is the Greek word, right? Uh, uh, that we're talking about not just like how we think of church as a building or how we think of church as Sunday services or Saturday night services and these types of gatherings. I'm talking about the church is a part of what you do in your family and your household. When I say loving the church and giving your life for it, I'm not talking about the American version or the institutional version. I'm talking about God's view of the church, which should be integrated in every area of our lives, even down to the level of our marriages, our parenting, our family, our businesses, and our work life, because household was the center for the work life in their culture. And that's why the household texts in the New Testament include instructions, include instructions to husbands, to wives, to children, to masters, and to slaves, because the household was a, was a center of life, right? And so I'm even trying to improve my language when I tell my, my four rambunctious children, uh, hey, it's time to go to church. I, I mess up a lot, but I really should say something like, it's time to go be with the church because the church is us. And we look in the New Testament pattern of the church, the church is gathered together in gatherings like this, in prayer meetings, in times for worship, but they're also the church when they scatter house to house. They're also the church when they're in their workplace or when they're doing different things together for the sake of the kingdom of God. 
So the church is not only the church gathered, we're also the church scattered. Just like when my family leaves and goes to the different activities, they're still a part of my family. They're still a part of my household, and hopefully they represent me well, right? Hopefully they represent their parents well, and ultimately, hopefully they represent their God well. But it doesn't make them a lesser part of the household because they're not in the actual physical building of the house, right? And so the church is this family of families. This church is this uh, household of households. And what else this tells us is that the church is an organic, dynamic uh, organization. We're an organism. There is a, there is a sense we're going to look at of the church's institution in just a moment, but the church is also organic. There's organic life. Like when you got a family, you got growth, you got life. You know, the, the family becomes a pattern for how the church should function, and, and there's a place for everybody. That doesn't mean that if you don't have a family, you don't belong in the church. It means that you get connected to a family because everybody needs a family if they're divorced, if they're single, if they're widowed, right? So the genius of God is to call this, uh, us the church, is to, to call us and assemble us together to be a family as families and to be a family for people that don't have a family, right? And then this speaks of this organic life, of this dynamic activity. Like, I don't know about your house and your family, but there's life, man. There is, there is schedules and needs and concerns and there is comfort and there is conflict and there is excitement and there is sorrow and there is every season and there's neighbors coming over and uh, we got this little neighbor kid that'll just like pop in the back door and I'm like, hey, how's it going? And she's like 10 years old and she's like, oh, yeah, just come in, help yourself. Do you want a snack? Like, what do you need? And and, uh, uh, you know, and there's this, and there's, there's neighbors, and, and then, of course, as kids grow up, they start to get interested in somebody, and they start to have children, and there's multiplication, and this is a, so a picture of a household is something that's growing and expanding, and expands into other households, and it multiplies. Life begets life, and this is what it's like in the church, is that there's to be a dynamic, organic, spontaneous growth type of reality that is expressed through the life of the church, because we've got a Father in heaven who loves to adopt kids and bring and draw people that are outside the family into the family through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. So when we look at the church as a household or as a, as a family, there's a dynamic growth uh, that should be taking place in our churches. So the church should be an organic movement as a household. I love what Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, wrote in the Apology. He was writing to defend the faith and the existence of the church under this uh, Roman Empire. And he wrote to the Roman leadership or emperor between the second and third century, and he said this. He said, We have filled every place among you, cities, islands, and fortresses, towns, marketplaces, the very camp, tribes, companies, palace, senate, forum. We have left nothing to you but the temple of your gods. It's powerful. He's speaking about the penetration of the church into every sphere of culture. And he's letting them know, as you're thinking about should the church exist, does the, is the church pose a threat to the state or to the balance and order of society? Or does the church benefit you? He's like, we're everywhere, man. We're everywhere you go. We're even in your own government buildings. And so the church was not just the church and the Christians when they assembled together. They were the church in every single area representing Jesus into different areas of commerce, culture, and influence, and government. And this should be the dynamic of the church. When I'm talking about giving your life to the church, I'm not talking about 
you know, uh, stifling your career so you can volunteer more at the church building. I'm talking about you incorporating your whole life to be a part of this disciple-making, reproducing organization so that you use your life to, yes, benefit the gathering of the saints because we need some good pastors and volunteers in every church, right, to make these things possible. But we actually use the dynamic of our whole life to extend the gospel and to make disciples and draw people into the family of God. It was uh, the church historian Justo Gonzalez that I was reading in the story of Christianity. And he said, how do we account for the early centuries of Christianity that the church is spreading and Christians and churches are popping up all over the known world at the time? And we tend to think of the apostles and the heroes of the faith like the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John and these people that were martyred or had, you know, had grace persecution and great risk to expand the gospel that like they were the ones that really made the church spread everywhere. And I would say they are certainly the leaders and the impetus behind, obviously, the writing of the New Testament, and really, uh, you know, were, were the kickstarters and the implementers and the influencers that really caused, as apostolic leaders, the, the, the faith to grow. But the way that, that the church really grew, the reason there's not very many historical accounts is because most of the leaders that would have been writing and taking records were not the ones who spread Christianity so rapidly across the Roman Empire. It was everyday believers. And we see glimpses of this, like when Paul goes to Ephesus in Acts 19, he pops up and he finds some disciples that are already there. And it doesn't appear that there's been an apostle there or there's been a church there yet, but yet there's already followers of Jesus because there was mercy and there was slaves and there was business people and there was government emissaries and people that were traveling and as they traveled as followers of Jesus as people of the way they reproduced their faith and they started the process of reproducing disciples everywhere they went there was an organic dimension so that's how the faith started spreading and the church didn't necessarily always pop up from the top down it, it grew from the ground up from just an everyday believer that was radically in love with Jesus sharing their faith and teaching them in the way that they had learned so that they could become a follower of Jesus as well. As missionary teacher Roland Allen said, he was a missionary in the Assemblies of God, and he, his life teaching is summed up in a phrase like, we must return the church to the way of spontaneous expansion of the way of Christ and his apostles. I love church, and I don't, I don't know that, I believe we're a gathered faith. I believe we need to come and worship and sing and minister to each other and see awakening and I want to see crowds that can't even fit in churches. I have dreams and visions for that, uh, even in this Pacific Northwest culture. But our churches are very complex to multiply, to get building, to get budgets, to have bylaws, to have, and, and I think there's always going to be a part of church that in some way or fashion looks like that. But maybe we have traded, maybe we've flipped what the emphasis should be on. And in the early church, what we see is, we see that the church could spontaneously expand. Now, some people think that the, the, the early church kind of missed it. Like, Jesus had the right way. You just roam through the hills. You hang out with people on the hillside. You're kind of like hippies, and you're like, dude, we just love everybody, man. Like, we're going to take care of the poor today. We're going to feed some people. We're going to cast out a couple devils, and I'm going to tell you some little stories called parables. And they're like, Jesus, you are so cool. Like, this is so fun. Peace, love, and happiness, right? And then the, the apostles, they started churches with elders, and, and they had councils. And like, what is all that about, right? But I don't believe that the early church missed it. I believe if we look at Acts 
Acts chapter 1, we see that the church continued to do what the Holy Spirit taught them to continue the ministry of Jesus. I believe that Jesus always had in mind what happened in Acts through the establishment of churches because in the book of Acts, it's impossible to separate soul winning, disciple making, and church planning. You cannot separate those things. In our American version of Christianity, you can try to separate those things, but that would have made absolutely no sense at all to the early church. It would have been impossible to be a follower of Jesus and not belong to the church. How could you belong to the head, Jesus Christ, and not be a member of his body? What would happen if we dismembered you today to your organ that we dismembered? (laughs) It would die, (laughs) right? So why do we think, why have we separated all of these things? But the church was, it was a dynamic group that was out there spontaneously expanding as people shared their faith in Jesus with others. And then the apostles would take care as leaders to go care for those different churches and different prophets and teachers would come and they would circulate letters to strengthen those new churches. But the church grew spontaneously because everybody in the church saw themselves as a part of the church. We don't go to church, we are the church. We participate, we all carry a piece of the mission to make disciples, to reach people, to plant churches and to further the purpose of the kingdom of God. This is why we see explosive growth like in the church in China, the church in Iran. In China, it wasn't until they got rid of all the missionaries, all the church buildings, destroyed all the Bibles that they could find, uh, that the communist government could find to destroy. And after it looks like there's no hope for the church in, uh, in uh, how many generations or how many decades has it been? Has it even been 100 years or so since all of these things took place in the cultural revolution, and now they estimate that there could be anywhere between 100 million, some estimates would maybe even say 200 million believers in communist China. Some experts say by like 2030, 2035, I believe it is, that if the same rate of church growth and conversion uh, to faith in Christ in China continues at the same, the same pace, that in that time period, that oh, 350 million or so people in China will be followers of Jesus. That is the entire population of the United States, basically, in China. That's how many Chinese people would be followers of Christ. And they were forced into this. They didn't have a choice, but they were forced into the way of Christ and his apostles that every member had to carry a piece of the mission and use their life, use their house as a mission center. Uh, they, they had to go underground and it forced people uh, to, yes, gather and be prayerful and worship and, and hear teaching from leaders, but it forced every believer to be a missionary and to spread the gospel house to house. It, it couldn't just be always broadcast by a leader or a teacher or, or a platform or a radio program, right? but believers, everyday believers, had to take what they had learned and they had to deposit it and share it to some, in somebody else's life so that that person could have an opportunity to come to faith in Christ. Same thing's happening in the church in Iran. Some estimate that the fastest growing church in the world is in Iran right now. And I would encourage you to see a documentary called Sheep Among Wolves, Volume 2. It moved me to tears. It's powerful. It's on what Jesus is doing. The testimonies will, will just will bless you, will challenge you, will impact you in an incredible way of what Jesus is doing right now in one of the most persecuted nations on the planet. The church of Jesus Christ is growing like wildfire. We are called to be the household of God a church that uses our homes as mission centers, our lives, our families as mission centers that are all carrying a part of the mission of Jesus in this generation. 
So we see this dynamic growth, family uh, on a mission kind of picture uh, when, when I see the church of the living God, the household, uh, uh, the church of the living God. But then we see this other dynamic that's more institutional and stable. It's called that the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. So we're not just a household or a family, right? But we are supposed, to, we are, I don't know if we always live up to this ideal, but we are, it's our, it's our birthright, it's our identity, it's our inheritance in God that as the church, we're the pillar and foundation of the truth. And we live in a culture that's really, uh, uh, I think ever since the Enlightenment, every, maybe every generation is trying to figure out what is truth. Is there truth? Can you know absolute truth or not, right? And uh, you hear people say, like, live your truth, man. Like, what's your truth? Oh, that's your truth. Or tell your truth. Speak your truth, right? And everybody's speaking their truth, but what is the truth? And then Paul has the audacity to tell Timothy, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, right, as we believe not only his thoughts or his words, but the very words that were penned were inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, and, and so these inspired words of Scripture tell us that the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. And I don't know how many times I studied 1 Timothy and read this book over and over and over again. And it wasn't until I was in a, a master's degree program a few years ago that I actually realized this verse existed. And when my teacher in my, my, my class on pastoral care started out with this Scripture, he put it on his little PowerPoint presentation, and he said the church is the pillar and foundation of truth. And I was like, is that really in the Bible? And it baffled me because I'm like, and then I'm like, First Timothy? I'm like, I've read that book so many times in my life. How did I never even remember this verse? And so I go look at it and I'm, I'm reading it. I'm like, yes, it's really there. And it's not just in the NIV for those of you that think it's the non-inspired version. It's in the other versions too. All you King James only people and everybody else, it's in the other versions too. All right, I'm telling you what. But so I'm thinking, how, isn't Jesus the truth? How can the church be the pillar and foundation of truth? And I started to think about and meditate on it. Jesus says in John's gospel, I'm the light of the world. But in the Sermon on the Mount, he tells the church that they're the light of the world. And maybe it's that as Christ is the head of the church and we're his body, that if we're connected to the head, that we're to exemplify the same reality as our head. And I believe that when God wants to reach into the world to change the world, he reaches through the church. He reaches through his body. We're his heart, we're his hands, we're his feet, we're his touch, we're his extension into a lost and dying world. And so if he's the truth, we should be the pillar and foundation of the truth. As the body, we're to hold up the head and make much of the head, right? And as the pillar and foundation of truth, we're to hold up the truth. And of course, the truth is primarily Jesus, as the Bible, Jesus revealed in John's gospel as well, that I am the truth. Not that he contains truth or talks about the truth or teaches the truth, but he is truth. Truth is a person. And then truth emanates, the, the, the truth that we learn about in the word of God emanates from his character and his person. And words give us the ability to connect to who he is. In fact, even one of his names, of course, is the word of God. And so that's, so Jesus is the truth. So why is the church the truth? Is because we're an extension of Christ into the world. So this means that we've got to represent Jesus. We've got to have inward convictions of truth that we never compromise in any generation so that we can be faithful to represent our head well. This also means that we're to pass on the actual teaching that Christ gave to the apostles and the apostles were giving to the church. 
If you look through Paul's letters, you look through uh, the, like the book of Hebrews or Jude and some of the different New Testament letters, you're going to find this little phrase, the teaching, the faith, sound doctrine, the first principles. They're all relating to the same concept. And we don't know exactly if we have the actual document or not. There is a version of it that's from the early church, but we don't know if it was the exact version that Paul and the apostles used. But there was a word called the Didache. And the Didache meant the teaching. Or, uh, or the first principles. It meant what, what basically every believer should be grounded in. And it appears when you start to study Paul's letters and some of the other uh, letters that were written by other authors in the New Testament that again and again they use this phrase, the faith. Not faith like, I've got, you gotta have more faith, like you gotta believe God, but like the faith. Like there is, there is something that's the faith and is not the faith, and Christians need to know what is the faith and how to defend and own and build their life on that faith or that teaching or that sound doctrine and how to refute those things that are not the faith and not sound doctrine and not the teaching. Does that make sense? Right, and so there was some body of work that the apostles were saying, get grounded in the first principles. That's why you got discipleship pathways coming up here, and that's why every believer, there, was, there should be no separation between a church attender and a disciple. And every disciple should be a disciple to become a disciple maker because we have a father that wants to reproduce the family and wants to grow the family, right? So this becomes very important that all of us are grounded in the teaching and first principles. If the church is the pillar and foundation of truth, we've got to not just tickle people ears and give motivational little pep talks and just try to get a lot of butts in our seats, but we got to teach people about what God says for life because eternity hangs in the balance because the health of our marriage and families, the, the fabric of our society depends on the church teaching them th their own people and then teaching the world God's standards of righteousness, morality, relationships, all these different areas are so important because God wants to influence all all of the world. He wants to influence every people, tribe, nation, and tongue. And so what we do in the church and how we teach people is of the utmost importance. Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch theologian, said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Now, I believe in common grace. I believe that sometimes God gives solutions to people that are atheists and scientists and doctors and non-believers and journalists and help solve problems outside of Christian, the Christian church. But I believe the primary way that he wants to influence the world is, of course, he, he, the Bible even says in Acts 17 that God pre-appointed times and dwellings that every person would live in. Uh, and basically says the, the generation you're born in, the nation you're born in, the family you're born in. He did all of that so he says that people might grope for him. So all of us are born in the, max, in the time and place and family and nation that would give us the maximum opportunity to be aware that there is a God who loves us and wants us to grope for him that he might save us and redeem us. And so God does, there's a common grace because God has made us in his likeness. Humans have value, right? We have, we're not just, I don't believe our primary identity is that we're fallen in sin. I believe we're all sinners by nature and choice. I believe in the curse. I'm not teaching against that. But we, before the curse came, we were made in God's image, in his glory and likeness. And therefore, there is the ability for humanity to do good and for God to use people because they're made in his image and likeness, whether they're redeemed or not. Right, but God gives us a saving grace that causes us to be born again, to be a part of his family, to be saved from the powers of hell and to have eternal life and then to know him and represent him in our purpose in the earth as long as he has us here. 
And therefore, God is interested in the whole of culture. If the church is the pillar and foundation of truth and we pull out of all these different areas of culture, what happens when you remove a pillar from a building? What happens if you were to remove a foundation from your house? The collapse would be sudden. It would be great. Wherever the church retreats on different issues, there's not only collapse in the church, there's collapse in the society. I believe that the most important leadership in this nation is not who sits in the White House, but who sits in the leadership of God's house. And as the pulpits in America go, so go her churches. And as the churches go, so go her nation. And we've got a lot of interesting teachings uh, swirling around the church right now that are being exposed, that are being debated, and hopefully are being corrected. Where people think that God has raised up America as the light of the world. And I've heard even leaders that I respect greatly say things like that, and it breaks my heart, and I start crying, and I'm grieving, and I'm saying, no, Jesus is the light of the world. The church is the light of the world. In Peter's letter to the church, he said that the church is a holy nation, a royal priesthood, that we're a new nation. That's how God changes the world. He didn't have to raise up America. He does raise up purposes on nations. Nations, national destiny matters, and I believe we should be patriots. We should love our country. We should pray for our country. We should pray for our leaders and our presidents, and there is nothing wrong with with serving our, our nation, serving in the military, serving our police, serving in government. We need Christians in government. We need Christians living their faith in different places, but we've got things a little bit skewed if we think that God has raised up America and that all of his plans for the globe swirl around uh, the, the geopolitical nation of the United States of America. That's not how God's plan operates. His plan operates through a new nation that he created and inaugurated through the birth and death and resurrection of his son and his ascension where he gave gifts to the church to be the administration of Christ in the earth. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. That is how God changes the world for his eternal purposes is through the church, not through a nation state. And so if we're the pillar and foundation of the truth, we've got to be an influence. We've got to be, as we've got to be salt and light, Jesus said, we're to be in the world but not of the world. We're to love the people of the world, but we're not to love the systems or the spirit of the world, the way that the world accomplishes things. And sadly, I think when the world sees the church grabbing for top-down power, they think that that's just another reflection of the world. We're not, how do we influence the world in all these different areas of society? How do we speak truth? We do it quietly. We do it gently. We do it with respect. We do it by living out our values You know, if we look at the missiological lens of the Apostle Paul, if we realize his heart is for mission, you know, when he's giving instructions to Titus about how the household should run, how uh, men and women should treat each other, how uh, slaves should treat their masters, he's not writing on his opinion of slavery. He's not even writing on his opinion of what leadership positions women should have in the church. What he's trying to say is, you guys, let's live in our households and our relationships, whether it's as husbands, wives, parents, moms, dads, older women, younger women, older men, younger men, masters, slaves. Let's live in such a way that we won't cause the gospel spread to be compromised. He says it repeatedly in Titus a few times so that the word of God won't be blasphemed or condemned. So that the, basically that the mission can go forward. This is what Paul cares about. Even some of the things that look prohibitive of women, if you look at it, not through our American lens, because they didn't have pulpits and stages and can a woman be an office of a pastor? Can she be an office of a teacher? Can she stand? Th- those que- are questions we have from our current constructs. And yes, the Bible needs to speak to our current age on these issues. But if we look back through that lens, 
hands, everything was in the household. And, and, and through church history, we see that women were probably the most radical frontline people advancing the gospel. And that's why Paul kept telling them, be directed not towards gospel, but towards good works. Because when you women are bringing people over through your social networks, and you're, you're bringing in the stranger, you're serving the poor, you're, you're taking care of people's needs, like people are coming to faith in Christ like rapidly. And it's maybe usually other women if we look through church history in those early years. And so when he's saying like, hold on the brakes, ladies, it's because we know even today in our current culture, right, that men don't usually like to be lectured by their wives. Uh-oh, I don't want to go to meddling, try to stick to preaching today. But what he's trying to say is, hey, your new freedom, your excitement, make sure you win your husband by the conduct of your character is basically what he's saying. So that the mission moves forward and your husband becomes a believer. So keep out there doing what you're called to do, but do it in such a way that will win your man over, ladies. All right, because he cares about people coming to Christ. And so we are called to reach the world and hold up truth in every area of culture, from our households, from these mission centers called the family. And then we're a family of families on the mission of God. And then we need truth for inward preservation so that we can live a quiet life so our lives aren't disqualified, as whether that's a pastor or a leader or just as members of the body of Christ. And also for the sake of the world that we're called to influence. We have got to uphold truth. We've got to create theology for every generation that's wrestling with uh, automation and uh, artificial intelligence, sexuality, uh, partisanship, race, poverty, the sanctity of life, privacy, technology, the arts, freedom, journalism, all of these things, people are wanting a fresh understanding. We don't, we don't give a fresh uh, revelation or fresh teaching. We have ancient teaching that applies to current trends and crisis that is timeless. And as we quietly, faithfully live out the truth that we embody and we do it in a spirit of generosity, hospitality, kindness, and love, then people are drawn to the faith and it's attractive. And we're not persecuted for being anti-government. We're not persecuted for being mean. If we get persecuted for being loving or living in ways of purity and righteousness, then let it be so and let us be unwavering and uncompromising in our convictions, but let us not be persecuted for being jerks. Amen? But let us be persecuted for actually standing for truth. But when we stand for truth, our families will flourish. Our, our churches will flourish. Our businesses will be a blessing. And we'll be positioned for influence for the sake of the kingdom of God. So we see this dynamic about being organic, being spontaneously expanding the church as a household of households and a family of families. And we see a dynamic of the church being this institution of truth that is unwavering, uncompromising, that is stable. And then there's this third thing that Paul begins to talk about to Timothy. And he says something really powerful. He says, beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. And he shares what scholars believe was probably a hymn that was passed around in the early church. That Jesus, he appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. And if there's any reason for you to fall in love with the church and to give your life to serve her and the purpose of God in your generation. It's because the church alone is the stewards. We are alone are the stewards of the mystery of the gospel. God's eternal plan was bound up. All of his eternal plan was bound up in the church that he would make us a new nation out of every, out of every other nation 
that he would make us a new nation, his people, his church, his living body from every generation, from every color, from every economic level, Jew and Gentile. He would call us to be his people. And he says that we alone are the stewards of the mystery of the gospel. We are the ones that get to tell the story. We are the ones that steward this mystery that God manifested in the flesh that Jesus came to die for us, to give his life for us. It was prophesied that he would come, that he would die, that he would be buried, and that he would raise again. And then he was seen by hundreds of witnesses after his resurrection. And it says here in this little hymn that he was uh, not only vindicated by the Spirit in his resurrection, but he was seen by the angels, that he was preached among the nations, believed on in the world, and he was taken up in glory. And one of these scriptures prophesied that not only would he come and die and be buried and be raised, but that as he left the earth in glory, that he's returning in glory one day to judge the living and the dead. Now, some Christians are a little confused about the kingdom of God. They're like, I'm a more of a kingdom person than a church person. I was like, you keep saying that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> yes, the kingdom. Jesus' primary teaching was about the kingdom of God. But the church is the one who has the keys of the kingdom. And it's because we steward this story, and I don't mean this story like it's a, a kid's story or it's a fable or it's a fiction or something that we should overlook, but sometimes it's the story. This is a true story, but it's the story that unlocks people's hearts that there's a God who loved them that he would put on flesh to come into our mess and our brokenness and not only show us how to live, but sacrifice his life for our sins so that we could be delivered from the judgment of God. And we are the heralds and the stewards of this mystery. Not only us as individuals. Yes, it's important for individual believers to lead other individuals to faith in Christ. And even disciple them and teach them what it means to be a Christian. But the whole church is to be a gospel community. Is to be a living embodiment of Christ. We're to live and be an example and a witness of what this mystery is about. That's why we take communion. As we gather regularly, we take the body and blood of Jesus. So that the center of our worship, the center of our churches is not a good preacher, is not a good leadership team, is not a nice building or a slick outreach or education program. It's Jesus and this mystery that he would love his own creation enough to sacrifice himself. History does not tell us about a God like this. This is unique to our Christian faith that we have a God who would insert himself amongst his own creation to take on our pains and our sorrows, our sin and our brokenness, to become our sins so that we could become the righteousness of God. This is the hope of the nations. This is what threatens the powers. This is what causes the church to outlast every nation, to outlast America, to outlast every other group of civilization in history. It's because our king is eternal and he has done a work for us that surpasses what any of us could dream or imagine. And you church, we the church, we have become stewards and administrators of this mystery so that people might be reconciled to God. And I hope today that in your heart, you would not only give your life to Jesus if you have never done so before, but you would give your life for his bride, his body, his household, his pillar and foundation of truth, the church. And that we would understand. I believe 2020 has been a gift. I believe, and not to lack sympathy for those that have suffered and lost loved ones or anything, but I believe in some senses for the church, this trial and crucible of COVID-19 has been a gift for us to reassess. And are our churches, and even as church members, are we really living this out? Are we really living a part of the church? Are there practices or rhythms that aren't bearing fruit in our lives? 
And it could be an opportunity for us to say, hey, we got to get in the game. We see a Canadian pastor that's jailed for doing an in-person service. I'm not going to get into the politics of whether that's the right move or not. But it is conceivable that the forms that in our lifetime, it's potential that the forms that we've done church in could be illegal at some point. How is the church going to exist and thrive? And I believe even if we don't face persecution for the sake of fruitfulness and global impact, we've got to get back to the way of Christ and his apostles where everybody's a part of the household. Everybody has a part to play in a home and in a family. Every person in the church, you're all important to the mission of God. And I just want us to pray today as we close. Since the Holy Spirit's presence and power here today Maybe you're here and you would say that your life is not right with God and you need to put your faith and trust in Christ. If you're here today and say, I'm not right with God, but I want to be, I want to give my life to Jesus, this one who died for me and rose again, I believe that. I'll give him my sin. I'll make him the Lord of my life. Would you just stand up where you're at? I don't know if anybody's here today that is not a follower of Christ, but you feel something in your spirit like I need to be reconciled to God. There's one. Is there anybody else? I don't know how you guys usually do this here. So just bear with me. Give me grace as a guest. There's anybody else. There's a couple standing. The pastor's here. You see him. I know if you have Bibles or connection about discipleship. And there's others of you that you just, I don't know how to say it. Ben said, you can pray for him. Like, what we would pray for at the end of this. If you want to love the church more, pray, stand up. No, but uh, if you want, I don't know, but you sense something in your heart that God's calling you into a deeper level of discipleship not just for your own growth, but so that you could be used to help others grow. That you, you want to be a part of multiplication. You want to be a part of the church. You want an anointing. You want to receive. You want the spirit of God to seal something that was spoken to your heart today. I'd just like you to stand as well as we pray. That you just want, you want to go deeper in being a part of the church and seeing your whole life as a part of the mission of the church. There's something God's stirring in your heart. Oh, Jesus, baptizer in the Holy Spirit and fire, I just invite you. I thank you for these that stood to say, I want to put my faith and my trust in Christ. And, Lord, I pray that as they say yes to you, as they're saying, I don't, I don't want to live apart from, from Christ anymore, that they would fully yield and you would show them what it means to be a true follower, to get baptized, to be filled with the Spirit, to be a true follower. And I pray for the rest of us, Lord, that have made a decision to follow you, that we would also not only give our lives for you, Jesus, but for your bride and your body, that we would love the church. Lord, that you would heal the wounds of church hurts and curses and unhealthy, toxic leadership that has brought abuse or pain into people's lives. We choose to forgive today those that have offended us and wounded us, Lord God. And I pray, Lord God, that you would bring us into authentic community. I pray that you would bless the ministry of Northwest Foursquare Church. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would seal this word in our hearts. I pray for a fresh anointing, a stirring up of the gifts of God to be released in each believer here. Lord, I pray that this church, Lord, that not only in the gatherings, but in the scatterings on Monday through Saturday, that there would be an anointing present. There would be an active awareness and reality of the Holy Spirit's work through every believer to preach the gospel, to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to build godly families, to restore marriages, to influence businesses, to influence neighborhoods, Lord God. Give us your vision for how beautiful and amazing the church can be, and give us practical steps and places where we can implement these things in our life. And I pray, Lord, that you would not, we would not serve out of a, a need to, a please, to, to please man or, or meet some quota, but we would do it because of the work of your Spirit. You want to do a deep work in and through your church, I believe. 
believe in 2021 as we're unraveling from this, this, this time of crisis and pressure. Lord, thank you for using the pressure in our lives to cause something more beautiful and fruitful to come forth. And I pray that above all, you would receive the glory that you are due, Lord Jesus. We love you and we give you honor. We say, have your way. That is our prayer. Have your way in my life, Lord Jesus. Have your way in how I participate in the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.